Let's hear God's word from the book of Isaiah, chapter 1, beginning with verse 16. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, ah, I will rid myself of my adversaries and take vengeance on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you and thoroughly purge away your dross and take away all your alloy. I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence with righteousness. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed for they shall be ashamed of the terebinth trees which you have desired and you shall be embarrassed because of the gardens which you have chosen for you shall be as a terebinth whose leaf fades and as a garden that has no water The strong shall be as tinder and the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together and no one shall quench them. Amen. We'll end our reading there at the end of Isaiah chapter 1. Let's once again ask for God's help in a brief word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask you to draw near to us now to help us that the author of this word may also illuminate our minds so that we grasp what is being taught, that we receive it with meekness, that we profit from it. O Lord, may this word today make us wise unto salvation through faith that is in Christ Jesus. Amen. Isaiah had already highlighted, has already at this point highlighted, the remarkable mercy of God in that Zion, Judah, had been spared from complete destruction. The Lord had left them a little remnant. Otherwise, in their distress and the calamities and the invasion that had come upon them, they would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that preservation of a little remnant was a tremendous mercy because, as Isaiah went on to say, they would have richly deserved a judgment as sweeping, as devastating, as absolute as the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we saw last time the indictment that Isaiah brings against them where all their religion was empty. In fact, was worse than empty. It was offensive because their religion was not joined with righteousness. They did the rituals but they didn't obey God. 
But God is speaking to them. Even in that condition, God continues to show mercy, and he calls them to repentance. And that's where we pick up today with verse 18, where there's a summons from the Lord to come and reason together. Now, what would you think would be the outcome of sinners coming and having an argument with God or having a reasonable discussion, if you don't like the word argument? Well, you would expect the sinners to be defeated. You would expect them to be overthrown. You would expect God to prevail because between sinners and God, who's in the right? Who's going to come out better from a spirited discussion between God and sinners? But what God envisions as the outcome of that discussion is actually their forgiveness. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. What God is saying is that the outcome of this reasonable discussion is that he will deal with their sin, that he will take it away. That ought to be a little bit of a surprise unless we're already familiar with the passage. And even when we're familiar with the passage, there ought to be the surprise of wonder. We know God does this, but it's still amazing. It's still counterintuitive. It's still not what we would do. God speaks to sinners, to sinners whose hands are full of blood, to sinners who are dyed in the wool, wicked, and says, all of that can go away. All of that can be cleansed. All of that can be corrected. Now, with the summons, there is a warning. If you refuse and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In other words, when he summons them to come and to receive forgiveness, he's summoning them also to repent to change their ways. If you're willing and obedient, you'll eat the good of the land. And that is perfectly reasonable. As he said, come and let us reason together. Imagine you've taken a loan from the bank or you have a credit card and you go in and you talk to a representative from the bank and you say to him, I'm not going to make any more payments. I would like you to forgive my debt. And also, I would like you to raise the credit limit on my credit card at the same time. I've never tried it, but I don't think it would work. It's a similar principle. If you say to God, well, you say you'll forgive my sins. Therefore, I'm going to continue in them. Therefore, I'm going to add to them. Therefore, I'm going to take that as permission, as a license to sin. That's not at all what God has in mind. He is willing to forgive your sins. He is willing to cleanse you from your sins. But if you're clinging to your sin, if you say, no, my sin is my identity. This is what I love more than anything else. In that environment, it's not rational. It's not reasonable to purge you of your sins, to forgive you for them. So this is always part of the biblical reality, part of the biblical summons to forgiveness. God calls you to come and be forgiven, not as a license to sin, as the first step in overcoming sin, in leaving 
sin behind. Now he moves on to lament how Jerusalem, how the faithful city had fallen away. It's characteristic of biblical laments to commence with the word how, pointing out a contrast. That's true in the book of Lamentations. That's the first word of the book. And it's true here in verse 21, how the faithful city has become a harlot. And here's the contrast. It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it. And now what's happened? Well, now it's full of murderers. He illustrates that with a comparison. Your silver has become dross. Instead of the silver being refined, getting more precious, more valuable, more pure, it's turning into lead or something else that's of no comparable value. Instead of being high-quality wine, it's watered down. And then he explains a little bit more what those metaphors mean. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. The princes don't follow the law. They hang out with crooks. They love bribes. They follow after rewards. They'll do what it takes to secure the goods or services or cash that has been promised. And so when they're chasing bribes, when they're engaging in their money laundering schemes, what gets neglected? Well, the defense of the fatherless, hearing the problems, the causes, the legal complaints that widows would have. Of course, the fatherless, the widows, that's talking about those who are the most defenseless, the most needy. That's talking about those who are having the hardest time. It's talking about those who can't afford the bribes and the rewards. Well, the very people then that the princes and the magistrates should be keeping a close eye on to make sure that they are doing well are the very people who get neglected once the government becomes a money laundering scheme. Well, that's what Isaiah is describing here. And it was a huge falling off from the days of David at any rate. David had his failings, but by and large, justice was administered in his reign. There's a story from his reign where a woman who was pretending to be in trouble secured an audience with the king. He was not inaccessible to the cause of the fatherless and the widow. Well, now they've gone astray from that. And it's an abomination in God's eyes. That's why he calls it adultery when he says the faithful city, the city that acted like a committed loyal spouse, has now become a harlot. Now, that already introduces an idea of idolatry because it's not just, as though it were a small thing, it's not just the failures of justice, the political failure. There's also a religious failure, which he's going to come to in the verses that come next. At the end of the chapter, verses 29 through 31 You might have wondered, what in the world is going on when it says, they'll be ashamed of the terebinth trees. You'll be embarrassed because of the gardens you have chosen. That's a reference to the sacred trees and the sacred groves that were involved in idolatrous worship. Whether they worshiped the Lord in those places, contrary to his rules, whether they went to those places and worshiped other gods, 
in addition to or as substitutes for the Lord, one of the problems that God's people were facing at this time, one of the sins they were committing, is that they were addicted to idolatry. And what God has to say about that is, okay, you've chosen these terebinths. You've chosen these gardens as places of worship. Well, you're going to be like trees and gardens with no water. Well, we've lived through that in California. After a couple of months of drought, the fire warnings become a lot more serious. You see that the risk is high. And that's what God says. The strong shall be as tinder, the work of it as a spark. Both will burn together. No one shall quench them. Once that fire starts, there's no putting it out. So one of the things he's saying there is that idolatry is deserving of judgment. Idolatry is self-destructive. So you have this lament. The city was faithful, but now it's a harlot. That's true in the political arena where they're not keeping God's law, where they're not applying God's law. It's also true in the religious arena where on top of the emptiness, the worthlessness of their religious ritual, they're also worshiping God wrongly or even they're worshiping the wrong God or gods. When you think about that situation being true, prevailing, among the people of God, I hope your first reaction isn't just, boy, those people were terrible. I'm glad we're so much better than they are. were. That shouldn't be our reaction. The government of Judah and Jerusalem is not the only government that's ever become a money laundering scheme. And the people of God in the Old Testament during the days of Isaiah are not, that is not the only time that the church, the people of God, has struggled with idolatry, with worshiping, with trusting in vain rituals, without righteousness, with thinking that God will bless us because we went to church even though our behavior is awful and horrendous, or with engaging in practices in worship that the Lord has prohibited, that the Lord condemns. That is also a thing that continues to happen. This lamentation could be pronounced in the United States. It could be pronounced about the church in the United States. And there would be a lot of points of contact. We need the summons to come and to be forgiven, don't we? We need the summons to come to be willing and obedient to learn to do good, to cease to do evil. But then God has something more to say about this. He says that he is going to rid himself of his adversaries. He's going to take vengeance on his enemies. God is going to act in judgment. And yet, At the same time that God brings vengeance and judgment, Zion will be redeemed with justice. God is going to bring about salvation or redemption through judgment, not independently of judgment, not apart from judgment, not in contradiction to judgment, but somehow what God does to avenge himself 
And what God does to redeem his people will be two sides of the same coin. So let's get into that. Notice how verse 24 begins. Therefore, the Lord says, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Just stop there for a second. We already know who he's talking about. When he says, therefore, the Lord says, that's really all the information we need. So why does he say the Lord of hosts? And then why does he add the mighty one of Israel? That's not meaningless repetition. It's not just to slow things down. It is to slow things down, but it's to slow things down so that we will take a moment. We will absorb. We will let it sink in who is speaking here. The Lord, well, there's God's covenant name that speaks of his eternal independent being who enters into covenant with human beings. The Lord of hosts, that speaks of the abundance of his power, the multitude of resources that he has, that all the hosts of heaven and all the armies of the earth as well carry out his plans and his purposes. And then when it says the mighty one of Israel, well, what a contrast to all the false gods that they were worshiping. What a contrast to those who were honored with the sacred trees and the sacred groves and the special gardens who couldn't move, who couldn't speak, who couldn't see. Here's the mighty one. But this mighty one belongs to Israel. He has entered into fellowship with them. He has claimed them to be his own. Now, when this person speaks, it's the part of wisdom to listen. When this person says he will ease himself or rid himself of his adversaries, you know he's perfectly capable of doing it. He has all the power that he needs. But who are these enemies? Well, notice how that's defined then in verse 25. I will turn my hand against you. You know, they probably didn't want to hear that. Isaiah is not going to win popularity contests by looking at the people of God in the capital city, maybe inside of the temple precincts. The prophets often went to the temple to deliver a word from the Lord. So you can imagine, here's all these people gathering for worship, and Isaiah comes and says to them, the Lord says, I will take vengeance on my enemies. I'll turn my hand against you. It doesn't take a mathematical genius to put two and two together and come up with four here. The Lord will take vengeance on his enemies. He'll turn his hand against you. You're saying we're the enemy. Yes, that is what Isaiah was saying to them. And here's the reality. Whatever our profession of faith, whatever we say, when our hands are full of blood, when our religious rituals are worthless because there's no righteousness in our day-to-day life, when we worship even the true God, but we worship him in a way that he has condemned, we have become God's enemies. We have made ourselves God's enemies by acting contrary to him. God is a God of holiness. God is a God of righteousness. God is a God of purity. God is a God of compassion. When we don't act in those ways, we are setting ourselves against God. What do you call somebody who sets himself or herself against God? You call them an enemy of God. Of course, we don't like to think of ourselves in those terms. But if the shoe fits, 
It's better to recognize that and to repent than to go on pretending. The pretending doesn't do anybody any good. It doesn't deceive God and it doesn't do you any good. It just keeps you from repentance. But notice this. When the Lord says, I will turn my hand against you, it's not all bad. And thoroughly purge away your dross. Now, in context, he had just talked about your silver had become dross, lamenting that the city had lost its righteousness and instead gone to corruption. So when he says, I will thoroughly purge away your dross, what is he saying? He's saying, I'm going to eliminate corruption. I'm going to get rid of it. I'm going to take away all your alloy. Instead of being mixed metal, you'll be pure silver once again. And then he spells it out even more specifically. I will restore your judges as at the first. You'll once again have judges who judge justly. Your counselors as at the beginning when they gave wise counsel And this city that had become a harlot will once again be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with justice and her penitence or her returning ones with righteousness. So what is God saying there? Well, he's saying that part of his vengeance is the destruction of sin in a way that purifies and restores his people. That's true in our own case as well. You were crucified with Christ. We are born in sin. We are conceived and born in sin. We go astray from the womb as soon as we're born speaking lies. God desires truth in the inward parts, and yet we're not truthful people by nature. And yet God can save us, God can redeem us, God can rescue and deliver us. But he does so through vengeance. He does so through death. He does so through the death of Christ when the vengeance of God fell upon him. And joined to Christ, we die with him. And so our old nature, us, as we come from Adam, is crucified, is put to death. Paul says that he's crucified to the world and the world is crucified to him. You find this all over the the letters of Paul. We'll see it in a little bit in Ephesians as well. We die with Christ. Our old nature is destroyed to make room for a new nature. And so this means that God's salvation or redemption has to include the destruction of sin. It has to include then that we're delivered from sin. That's why it can't just be, well, you're forgiven and now carry on. That wouldn't actually be salvation. That wouldn't be deliverance from sin. We want to get back to the point where we belong to the city of righteousness, where we're good citizens of that city. We fit in because we're also righteous. We're also faithful. God has worked in us to change us. Now, the forgiveness comes first. I understand that. But it's like the engine of a train. It pulls all the other things along with it. You cannot be forgiven and yet not transformed. You cannot be justified and yet not sanctified. 
You can't break up that train or that golden chain of salvation. And what a wonderful mercy in the middle of vengeance. The Lord destroys the corruption. The Lord purifies them, but Zion itself is preserved. In the same way, we are crucified with Christ, and yet you gain eternal life. It is really you who is saved from all of that. Now, that's one way that God brings vengeance and purifies his people is he destroys our sin from within us. But there's another way that God purifies his people. Look at verse 28 in Isaiah chapter 1. The destruction of transgressors and of sinners shall be together, and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. In other words, God purifies his people by destroying the sin of those who are willing and obedient, of those who repent. But those who are obstinate, those who say, no thanks, I prefer to continue in my sin, well, they get destroyed in a little bit of a different way. In their case, it's not just their sin, it's their whole self. Those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed. In other words, shall be burned up, shall be utterly destroyed. This is the reality. The call to repent, the summons to forgiveness, is a call to die with Christ, to crucify your flesh, as Paul also calls it, to take up your cross and follow Christ into death on the cross, death to sin. Those who refuse that call don't avoid death. They might postpone a little bit, but in fact, there's a deeper, there's a more profound, there's a more total destruction that is still coming for them. You either die to sin in this life and rise again with Christ, Or you remain dead to Christ in this life and then you die in your sin. You die forever. You die the second death, another name for the lake of fire. Isaiah's not pulling any punches here, is he? He is laying it on the line. He is telling it like it is. And notice that Isaiah is saying this to people who identified themselves as belonging to the Lord. You might hear a message like this and think, well, this is for the unbelievers. This is for the world at large. Well, yes, it is. I'd be happy to preach this to a congregation where nobody was converted as of yet. But it's also relevant for us. Even growing up inside the bounds of the covenant, even having God's name applied to us in baptism, even calling upon him from the time that we are little, we also need to hear this warning. Our sins are as scarlet, but they can be as white as snow. God summons all of us to forgiveness. And for those who accept that call, for those who answer the summons, God's promise is that his vengeance 
doesn't really hurt you. I'm not saying it doesn't sting. I'm not saying that you don't experience some difficulty in dying to self. But it doesn't damage you. It restores you. It makes you able to enter into the heavenly Zion, the true city of righteousness, the faithful city where we belong because God has summoned us, forgiven us, and purified us. Thanks be to God for a salvation that doesn't still leave you wallowing in your sin. Amen.